Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 66, with the title, Staying Positive in a World Full of Negativity. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to welcome Caroline Kavanagh. Caroline describes herself as an anxiety specialist and professional speaker. When I asked Caroline to describe her superpower, she said that she's been described as a velociraptor. And whilst not intended in the nicest of ways, she'd like to think she still has the tenacity and focus, but in a much cuddlier way. Hello, Caroline. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joanne. It's lovely to be here. And we've had a couple of attempts at this, so uh, it's lovely that we're now live. And I'm really looking forward to, to having a chat and seeing where we go with this. Likewise, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. So, Caroline, staying positive in a world full of negativity. That's not easy, is it, sometimes? Oh, it's my immediate answer to that is it's as easy or as difficult as you want to make it. I love, in a lot of the work that I do, I love making it very practical. So the best way, if you'll join in with me to kind of bring this alive, if, if I was to say, right, I'm going to count to five, look around where you are at the moment and count how many blue things there are. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five. There's some blue things around you. How many green things did you see? And often when people do that, it's kind of, I I used to do this a lot um, going into schools. I used to run assemblies and the kids would go, oh, miss, you only told us to look for blue things. And then you kind of see the pennies start to drop in that the green things were always there, but you see what you focus on. And we are surrounded through social media, through the news, especially in negativity. But there's equally a lot of positive things as well. And so a lot of the work that I do is really helping people to see the green things in the world rather than focusing on the blue. That's so true, what you're just saying there. As you're talking, it's... We buy a new car, and then every car on the road is one like ours, isn't it? We suddenly Absolutely. start latching on yeah. this uh, yep. its brain, picks up on the things it's focused on. Mm-hmm. And there's, I don't know if you've seen that video. Remember that video, there's a video where people are playing base basketball and throwing the basketball to each other. And in the middle of the video, a gorilla walks on the screen, waves at everybody, and walks off again. But all, you're instructed to count the number of passes in the basketball. So you just don't see the gorilla. And when you watch it back again and go, how did I ever miss that gorilla walking through the the people playing basketball? And you're so right. We're we're so focusing on, in the moment, the news, what we've been bombarded with. We don't stop to see the other things in life, do we? And I think that's very true, what you just said. Yeah. And so a lot of the work that I do, it's all around anxiety. So negativity naturally will often lead people to worry about things. Yeah, worry is another word for anxiety. And actually, anxiety is a socially acceptable word for fear. We don't tend to use the word fear very much because it's a four-lettered F word. 
And a bit like the other one, it's kind of socially unacceptable. So we've changed it for anxiety. So what we focus on can give us particular feelings. And so a lot of the things that um, cause anxiety is purely a relationship of what we are focusing on. So I I talk a lot in in metaphors. It sometimes drives people mad, but it helps to clarify things. I think it's like putting a different lens on your camera. You know, if you have a great big, you know, telephoto lens, you see things in a lot of detail, but you miss the bigger picture. Whereas if you put a different lens that goes down to a very, you know, short focus, then you'll see you might be looking at exactly the same thing, but it looks very, very different. You know, put a landscape lens on your camera, you'll see a big picture wide, but you lose some of the detail. Um, But in each of those, you will get a feeling based on what you're looking at. So if you want to change anxiety, a lot of the things at the time is about helping you to refocus on other things to give you a different feeling. You know, one of my big premises is anxiety is not a bad thing. You know, the role of fear is to keep us alive. If we didn't have fear, you'd walk out in front of the, in the road without checking for cars. You'd put your hand on something hot. Fear's role is to keep us alive, to keep us safe. So it's not a bad thing. It purely becomes an issue for people when it becomes overly dominant. Does that make sense? And it's the same root as biases. That they're not all bad. They keep us alive. So biases and fear, anxiety, fight or flight. Mm-hmm. This is part of our brain here that reacts, keeps it's us alive. It's a survival alert. instinct. Mm. Yeah. And it's a survival instinct. The, the, um, there's, a, there's a great saying I love, and it's everything you've ever desired is on the other side of fear. It's fear is always holding us back. It, it's the thing that stops us living our life freely, if you like. It's the anxiety. It's all those challenges. So yeah, we've I, lived I, in I a world for the last... A little bit, and I'd say what we, what we stay within is our comfort zone. And mm-hmm. comfort zone doesn't necessarily mean it's comfortable. What comfort zone actually means is you understand how it works. Mm-hmm. So therefore, by definition, what's outside of the comfort zone is you don't understand how it works. It's uncomfortable. And to get from comfort to discomfort, that's where fear is the border. Because by stepping into something that you don't know, that's where fear actually is a positive thing because fear's role is to actually improve your performance. So the the real high feelings of fear, adrenaline, the the butterflies in the tummy, the heart rate, the, the sweaty palms... That's actually all a physiological response to make you perform better. So when we're actually stepping out of the comfort zone into uncomfortable, actually being in a physiological and mental state that allows you to perform at a higher level is a good thing. But mm. people often misinterpret that and go, oh, I can't do that. It's too scary. Well, take a smaller step. I, I, I've, I've learned that. I mean, you're a professional speaker as well. I'm a professional speaker. Just before I, I step onto a stage in front of a room full of people, my heart rate is going, my stomach is churning, yeah. Yeah. my brain is telling me I can't do this, my brain is telling me I'm going to mess up, my brain is saying, run away now. And I've almost said to a lot of people, if, if someone came up to me 30 seconds before I went on the stage and said, Joe, your slot's cancelled, don't worry, you don't have to do it. I, in my pants, I was saying, I would, I'd say thank you, I'm off, bye. Yeah. And, so, and it's not until I step on that stage, and I'm sure you have the same sort of emotions, yeah. and say the first word, and then suddenly all of that fear or that anxiety just fades away, and you're there doing your job. You, you mm. then relax into it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. I mean, I, um, it used to be when I first started out speaking, I would start worrying probably about 48 hours before and have the sleepless nights and all that malarkey. But again, I use the tools that, you know, I do generally practice what I pe- preach. But now, like you, it's that kind of probably about 30 minutes or so before I start. You know, I can feel the heart rate rising. But now I kind of welcome, okay, I know this is a good thing because I'm going to be more alert, more on the ball. You don't want something standing in front of an audience of, you know, 150 people that's kind of laid back. You want someone that's on the ball and firing. And that's what adrenaline does for you. So again, it's what you focus on. You can see that feeling as something that's going to hold you back, or you can see that feeling as something that's going to drive you forward. Do you want to see it as a negative or do you want to see it as a positive? It's a choice. Is it a, a, a truism? Is it If we push our boundaries all the time, does the our anxiety line move? It just, we just we can cope with more or is it our base anxiety is always there? Fear is always there because it's keeping you safe. So as I say, we when people say, I, I never want to feel anxious again, well, go and sit in a cave. <laughs> you know, that's probably the only solution. If you want to get up and living, then you are going to experience anxiety or fear at some point. But the more you push those boundaries, the easier it becomes to continue to push them. So I've got this lovely little mathematical thing. So bear with me. If you think of... Um, a square that's kind of one meter by one meter. You've got a one meter square. If you take one step out of that and get to two meters, so that's quite a big step. You've increased it by 100%, but then your area of your comfort zone is then four meters. So it's increased disproportionately. To then take another step, you're going from two meters to three meters. So that's easier proportionally than going from one to two. That was 100% from two to three, that's only 50%. From three to four, that's only 33%, from four and so on. And each time, the general area of your comfort zone is increasing disproportionately. So the more you step outside those boundaries, the easier it becomes and the more confident you become. People often say to me, oh, you know, um, I want to be more confident. Confident isn't something you get. You can't just go to Tesco's and buy it. Confident is a result of bravery. So it's like the the ABC. You go from anxiety through bravery to get confident. And it's that bravery of stepping outside your comfort zone that allows you to grow. Hmm. I I took on the role of the presidency of a a national organization um, some 10, 15 years ago. And people ask me about why did I do that or how did I do it, whatever I did. And I I flippantly always say, because I could. Mm -hmm. Because what had happened was uh, throughout my career in this organization, I I moved up a ladder one rung at a time. So I did some roles within my local club, stepped up, did another role in my local club, stepped up a bit more. And then I became the chair of the local club. So I was up about five rungs up. Then I did some of the yep. area stuff and the district stuff and stepped up, stepped up. Then I did some stuff on the national executive and the committees, stepped up and stepped up. Then I realized that the, the, the distance between where I was today and doing the presidency of the entire association was one rung. So taking that extra one rung was incrementally easy. easy I was yeah. just I could touch it. I could feel it. I could be it. I knew mm-hmm. I could do it. Yeah. And I, I remember saying to someone, the year, the year after I finished, I – 
I, I slid down the pole next to it, the fireman's pole down to the bottom. And someone said, would you do it again? I looked back, I went, I could never do that again because I'd slid down the pole. And it was now a massive ladder again. And uh, so exactly what you're saying there is you're doubling the squares. You're just taking another step and another step. You, you look over your shoulder and think, wow, haven't I come a long way? Absolutely. But the reality is the next step is so close. It's touching distance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I take an awful lot from nature and I, I don't remember whose quote it was, um, but someone said, you know, in, in nature, two things are happening. Things are either growing or they're dying. You know, it's a, a little bit blunt. Yeah. It's a little bit binary, but actually it's quite true. So as individuals, we can keep nudging and you don't have to be, you know, some superhuman or, you know, or velociraptor. As long as you are taking steps, you know, you can do it by the meter, you can do it by the millimeter. But whilst you are still pushing that comfort zone out, you are growing. As soon as you stop pushing it, it starts to shrink. And that's one of the big things that happened that's caused this massive rise in anxiety during the pandemic, because everyone's comfort zone was forcibly shrunk. One of the things I, I love driving, I'm quite a confident and hopefully competent driver, but I didn't get in my car and drive for, I think it was about 10 weeks. And the first time I got in the car, I could actually feel my heart rate rising again. I felt nervous because that comfort zone of, you know, driving all over Europe had suddenly gone to not driving at all. You know, it very quickly bounced back to where it was, but it was a real clear sign of how comfort zones, if you're not nudging them out, do start to ping back. And if you bring this into, you know, the corporates, people have been working from home. They're now being told to go back to work. That's actually a source of anxiety for a lot of people, even though they may have been working in an office for 20 years of their career. Yeah, I I see a lot of that, yeah. It's making that first step is the hardest one. Then you inch and you inch and you inch. So going back to work. And again, a lot of corporates that are doing this well in, are inviting people back to the office one day a week, then two days, then three days, rather than saying, you've been working at home for two years, you've got to come back full time. That's too much of a jump for a lot of people. Mm. So break it down into those incremental steps that makes it much easier to do. Yeah, we went from a kind of a, a FOMO society, fear of missing out, to a JOMO society, which is the joy of missing out. You didn't need all that high energy, extrovertism, partying, mixing. Mm-hmm. And then we moved from a JOMO society to a CBA society where we, we can't be asked. You know, we kind of, our static position is kind of comfort zone at home. Why do I need to go out? Why do I need yeah. to do this? I've managed perfectly well for two years. I'm happy. Yeah. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Moving people from from the can't be asked, rooted to the sofa or rooted to the home, to through JOMO back to FOMO, and it's getting people yeah. to re, re, recalibrate. If you like, interesting. I've seen a lot of things on the other side as well of people that were you know suddenly working from home and going, why the hell do I want to go back to spending an hour and a half on a packed train every morning? to work in an office with people I don't actually like. And so for a lot of people, ironically, you know, flipping it on again, overseeing the positive, is a lot of people have gone, I want to do something just for me now. 
and had complete career transformations or said, you know, that thing I always wanted to do, I am now going to do it. So, you know, there, there's been a whole spectrum of, of responses to, to the lockdown, um, and some of which I think, again, are really positive, giving people a, a new lease of life to really, it, it's enough of a change out of their comfort zone to say, actually, this step that I've been thinking about for a long time from where I am now is much more achievable. Hmm. As a, as, a, as a society, just think about the UK for a moment here. We've had a lot of change in the last three or four years. You know, Brexit has created anxiety for a lot of people in terms of their businesses or their travelling, the way they're interacting with people, then you know, obviously COVID, the multiple lockdowns, the vaccination scares, whether we should be vaccinated or not vaccinated, we had unwinkable decisions. Uh, we've had a lot of anxiety in our political establishment around uh, our faith and confidence in our leaders to manage and govern effectively. We've now got the war in Ukraine destabilizing a major part of Europe and creating another bit of fear and unknown. We've got, now we've got traffic disruption, uh, lack of resourcing against uh, people being able to fly and because of the, the COVID pandemic. And we've got cost of living crisis. We've got oil prices, energy prices. So, as a society, we've been through a lot in the last three or four years, and it, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. We seem to have mm-hmm. this, which must be really impacting on people's mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where, again, it, it's what you choose to focus on. So to give you a very personal example, when the Ukraine situation was sort of in, in the big focus, and I was thinking about that today, actually, we hardly ever see it on the news anymore. I'm sure you know, it hasn't ended but when it was really that focus, um, my husband and I did have a discussion. Do we a, go down the road of, of having um, a, a refugee? Do we make uh, open our doors? And it was a really tough call. Um, my, my daughter was just about to start sitting her A-levels. And I thought, well, actually bringing one, two, three people into our home and disrupting that environment at a time when we actually need a lot of stability, is that a good cause? And it was a real, like, heart versus head, doing the right thing for her, for people who are now homeless. Um, And in the end, we decided we wouldn't uh, get a refugee, but we would make a donation to a charity to hopefully help them in that way. And that was my decision. This is what we can do. Therefore, do what you can do. I can't solve the war. I can't save soldiers' lives. Therefore, I'm not spending a lot of my time on energy worrying about things that I can't have any impact over. And with all of these things, you know, it is a reality, you know, our electricity bills have gone through the roof. Worrying about it, all it's going to do is to actually diminish your own mental health, your enjoyment of the day. So bring it back to what can you do? So, you know, can you be more disciplined in turning off lights? Can you change things to be more, you know, environmentally friendly, use less electricity? What can you do? Because as soon as you put yourself back in a position of control, you reduce the anxiety. So it's like anxiety and control are two ends of a line. And as soon as you increase or decrease the control, the anxiety decreases. Similarly, if you increase the control, the anxiety reduces. You can't have them both present at the same time. It's almost like one's black, one's white, and there's shades of gray all between. And so as soon as you put yourself in that and take back an element of control, you will be reducing your anxiety. 
a previous guest and uh, and speaker friend of mine, uh, a lady called Mandy Hickson. In her former life, she was an RAF fast jet fighter pilot. She used mm-hmm. to fly tornado F4s 100 feet above the ground in, through mountains, wow. regions, into Afghanistan, places like that. Yeah. And her, one of her phrases she, I often quote is, control the controllables. Yes. So you can't control everything. Yep. What you can do is control what you can control. And a, a, another phrase that someone put in, an acronym is CIA, control, influence, or accept. Mm-hmm. If you can't control it, can you influence if you can't influence it can you accept it and if you can't accept it you then have to pick another option you have to say well i have to influence something or i have to control something or change the rules Mm -hmm. and step out of this because if you if you end up not being able to accept something that could be worse not being able to control something so it's moving to a point where you either accept it or change it and sometimes given a rock and a hard place change may be better than, than staying where you are yeah, I, I, I think that's a great acronym. I and mean, I tend to focus more on the, on the control. It's eight, but you accept the energy prices aren't going to be coming down anytime soon. Yeah, can you influence them? Probably not, unless you want to become a, petition, a, a politician overnight. So what can you control? You can control your usage, your exactly. spend. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, then... You can limit that to an element. What else do you then let go of? You you prioritize. What's a priority for you? You know, my we- my had a lovely conversation with my son years ago where he was getting very upset because all his a couple of his school friends were always in designer clothes, had the you know latest gadget and gimmick, and he said, you know, well, why don't why don't I have that? And I said to him, well, we've decided that we're going to spend our money on experiences. So you have amazing holidays. You know, age 10, you've been to three continents in the world. We go to the theatre. We go out to lots of restaurants. That's how we decide to spend our money. And it means the compromise on that is you get your jeans from Tesco's. It doesn't matter because you're going to rip them in the first week anyway. But that's aside. But, you know, it's all about choices. What, what hmm. is a priority to you? Um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, massively dated, but it's still relevant. You start off at the bottom, you know, have you got shelter? Have you got, can you be, meet your, you know, food needs? Once that's ticked, you go up to the next level. Hmm. Um, and so it's coming back to, well, yes, we all need to be warm. And sometimes that means you have to compromise on something else if that becomes your priority. But you're back in control when you make those decisions. I love what you're saying about your sort of your family ethos of mentor, if you like. Yes. Stuff, sorry, memories, not stuff. And yes. it took me a long time to realise that in my life. Maybe I had to do my 40s and get into my 50s before I realised that memories were now more important. But then I, I, I suppose on the other side is I had stuff most of my life. I bought cars, I bought expensive things, big house, all that. So I did all that. And I think what happened was I realized that that didn't give me satisfaction. It was memories with people and family that started to become more than inanimate objects mm-hmm. and possessions. Um, I didn't need the fastest car. I didn't need the newest this. So it didn't need to be shiny anymore, just adequate and working. So, yeah, it, it took me a long while to realize that. And maybe we should teach that in our schools. Memory is not stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a, good, a good mantra, I think. I think uh, for for the likes of you and me, that's important. But for other people, the stuff is important. Oh, yeah. 
Now, some people I, do I, I genuinely get that pleasure for every time they get in their Ferrari, they feel good. Mm. Whereas for me, all I need is a car that starts when I turn the ignition on. I don't really care what it looks like. So again, it comes down to that um, choice. What you what you focus on gives you the feelings that you want. So if it's the if it's the red Ferrari and driving at you know ninety miles an hour, that makes you buzz. Brilliant, do that. But for me, I would rather be in the center of you know Borneo hunting for some you know weird out, uh, animals or something. It's 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 a choice. Oh, do what completely. makes you happy. Yeah. yeah. But for me, I'm just for me here, I found myself chasing the next fix through stuff. Mm. And I real that's what that's the epiphany when i I found I could get my fix from memories, from family, from experience, from that emotional connection with, with, with those memories. And yeah, I mean, I, I could have a track day, I could drive a fast car, I could do all that sort of thing. And that's a memory as well. So, yeah, if you're building memories through stuff as well, that's even mm-hmm. even greater. But, yeah, I, I suppose mm-hmm. for me, I just reached that point in my life where I was focusing on what was important to me now. And uh, I always tell my children, don't buy me tat for Christmas or birthdays. Buy me a memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, my daughter bought me a, uh, a an experience day. We went and walked with alpacas for two hours we weren't in the field we had an alpaca each and we just walked around with this alpaca on a lead feeding it and watching uh-huh. it have a poo and have a wee yeah. and all this sort of thing and it was just a, a wonderful two hours to spend together and that was an experience that i'll never forget i'll treasure that now for the rest of my life and there was mm-hmm. there's i think laying down those memories and, and again you, you talk about fear and anxiety it was a great opportunity to de-stress to chill take it easy focus on the alpaca not anything else going on in the world no mobile signal all those kind of things so it was a it was a great opportunity to spend time with my daughter for two hours what three hours and totally didn't get in there yeah and I mean, yeah it was a this year we've, we've decided we said to our, our kids i mean their, their kids are 17 and 18 now um is we're going to go skiing for christmas and that will be your present yes there'll be a couple of token things that you can open on the day but that will be the present is you know all spending um yeah a week of over christmas in the alps because that to us becomes something and actually they're really excited they don't care that they're not going to get design or whatever or gizmos because that will be that's how they determine their fun now yeah i i think it's i think it's magical i think it's magical Um, when i'm I'm, uh, i I talk to a lot of leaders and uh so my what i talk about is inclusion belonging yeah i see a lot of leaders not truly allowing their staff to perform at their best. And, you know, a lot of people have anxiety over pressures of work, too much to deliver. And I, I certainly talk to people who are kind of being overloaded with work tasks. How do, how do you help people sort of overcome that, that loading or the overloading that you can often find in the workplace? It's yeah, that is a really tough one. Um, many, many years ago, I used to work for Honda um, you know, very Japanese culture. And uh, so this would have been in the mid 90s. And it was very much that you didn't leave the office until your boss had gone. So people would be sitting there literally playing, you know, video games on their on their laptop because they couldn't be seen to be leaving their desk because their bosses was hadn't left yet. 
And hopefully we've moved a long way from there, but there is still this um, fear of failure. And it's, it's determining what for you is failure. So, you know, I, I left companies probably before I was kicked out because I was quite like velociraptor again. I would bite people quite readily and say things that didn't necessarily go down well. And hopefully I've got a little bit more decorum about that now. But I encourage people to say, you, you are the only one experiencing your life. And to stand up and actually say, I cannot do all of this work in the time that you've given me is a responsibility that you should place on yourself because the only person that's struggling is you. So fear of failure, fear of judgment, they're, they're very similar in terms of their orientation. And especially I do a lot of work with teenagers um, and a lot of teenagers do really worry about the fear of judgment. And so judgment is purely an opinion. So allow someone the opportunity to change their opinion. Or notice it is an opinion. You don't have to take it on board. So similarly, if you have a strong opinion, share it, but accept that others may not agree with it. But the source of that, you know, I'm I'm overburdened, I'm worried, I'm working too hard. Who is going to suffer from that? It's only ever going to be you. And, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's not tough. Oh, sorry, it is tough. It is hard to step out of that comfort zone and, and put your hand up and go, actually, I cannot do this. Where we go from then is rather than just giving your boss the, the problem is I can't do this, but I can do this, this and this. And if we did this differently, that would save us more time. So again, when I had, when I worked in the organization and had quite a large team with me, I always said, never come to me with a problem, always come to me with the solution. And we can then discuss if that's the best solution. And between us, we can work out where we go. But your problem isn't my problem. Take ownership of your problem and find the solution. Because again, coming back to what we were talking about, that puts you back in a place of control. Now, if you pass the problem over to your boss and just go, oh, I'm struggling, then you're still not in any other place of control because you've given the problem to someone else. Whereas if you go, okay, I'm struggling and this is what I need, doesn't necessarily mean you've got it, but you've taken a step further down that line of control. Yeah, you can ask for resource, you can ask for help, you can ask for prioritization. You can, easy phrase for me, I always say is, I've got four things. I can do three. Which one gives? Which which, which, which is one, the least important thing today? Yeah. And it's working on techniques like that because I, I, I see a lot of burnout in in people in work and the anxiety and all this kind of pressure. It's because they don't they're not they, they want to say yes. They want to be seen as competent. As you say, the fear of being judged badly, isn't it? It's, it's, it's mm. kicking in. Yeah. But I'm certainly seeing within organizations as the sort of diversity inclusion on a sort of very macro level is starting to come in. There is more acceptance of people that, you know, not to make light of it, are different in some way. That is also now opening the door to conversations about other things as well. So it's moving away from fitting into the stereotypical, this is how I need to be to make being different, being unique, 
much more acceptable and tolerated now. We've still got a long way to go, but I do believe it is getting better. And so making those conversations easier to have also. I don't know, is that something that you'd agree with? Yeah, I, I think there is a, uh, as you said, diversity, inclusion, inclusion, belonging, workplace well-being, I see as, as big ticket items these days. And I think George Floyd, COVID, in the UK, we had Sarah Everard's rape, murder and abduction and the murder of other women, a lot of anxiety around that. So people are waking up now to this, you know, if we're in danger when I say waking up, of being the woke culture, you know, for me, being woke is just becoming socially aware of the challenges in society. So we are coming more aware about people's challenges, about the, in the workplace, getting along. Um, leaders are more, more acutely aware now of their responsibility, of how they make people feel. Organisations realise that their culture is dependent on their employee engagement, their employee experience. There's a global talent shortage struggling to employ and recruit people and again the candidate experience has to be fantastic otherwise you end up making offers that get counter-offered or declined at the last minute so I, I think employers are definitely tuned into the fact now that we're living in a different world and the the, the focus on people is critical to their survival and their success mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think um i would love to get in a time machine and go forward you know 10, 20 years. I was talking to an organization just a couple of weeks ago, um, big name in the finance industry who are doing a lot of work at sort of middle management and below in terms of staff well-being and mental health. But the head of the organization, when he was approached for investment, just turned around and said, I don't employ people to make them happy. But this is someone that is very much of a, you know, should we say a much older generation that would have been in that organization right the way through for the, you know, for 45 years of of his career and had got to the top, but he was still running that mentality. So that becomes very hard to change. But, you know, when he does move on and someone that perhaps is a little open-minded, there will be a continual and it's that proverbial um you know the rolling stone it gets faster and faster change is happening and i think the pace of change will increase as you know even people of our generation who are you know a force for change uh bringing people up below us that's going to mean that it becomes the norm rather than something that you're fighting to achieve mm. it just takes time and you're right it is a reality that there are Still, organisations out there that have, um, let's just say, people within it who are living in a different era and different mentalities and different culture, and there are still this pervasive thoughts about, you know, I, I own you. You're here to do what I my bidding. Mm. Again, we come back to perception, perspective, opinions, and judgment. I'd like to think that those are becoming less, less and less. But I, I, I completely agree that maybe at the senior levels, at the board level, there is a lot of that old school thinking where their their pressure is shareholder value. They don't, they don't want you to be happy. They want you to deliver shareholder value, and that maybe Absolutely. they haven't quite crossed that threshold yet to understand mm-hmm. that happy people deliver better value. And it's also, and I admit, it's a very privileged thing to say is if you're not happy with where you are, rather than the anxiety or the fear about it then you have the opportunity to change and that is leave, find another job. Yeah, and I appreciate absolutely. that. It's a very privileged thing to say to say to someone, if you're not happy, leave. Because there are many people who can't for whatever reason 
or they're not in in a marketplace where they're they have they feel they have value. So yeah, it, it is. But you you have the choice to put up or shut up or, or get on with it or make a difference. And uh, I always say to people, if you if you're working for a boss, working for an organization where you don't find your values are being respected, then you either just have to assimilate yourself into it or make the ultimate sacrifice and say this is this place isn't for me i'll leave in the same way the company would do to you if you didn't fit into their values and ethos they would soon exit you out the door so you have the same choice to make your own decision so mm. I, I would encourage people to do that but yeah say it's a very privileged thing to say not everyone's enough is able to sort of make that life changing or job changed for whatever circumstance when I when I first started working as a therapist, I used to think that uh, one of the most debilitating emotions was guilt. But I've actually reviewed that, and I would now say that the most toxic emotion is regret. And regret kind of has two prongs. There's regret of things that you've done, but actually you can turn that into a positive because there's learning. Whereas regret of things that you didn't do and can't then do can become very, very debilitating. And so bringing that into, you know, regret for not leaving a company, you can't ever change that. Whereas regret for leaving means you learned and you can use that learning to go on and get a better job. And as you say, you know, that it's a very easy way for some people, like, there's all the buts and wherefores, but I would come back to very basic you are responsible for your quality of life. Yeah. People often say, that makes me angry. No one can make you have a feeling. They can physically hurt you by pushing you over, punching you, but no one can make you have a feeling. And the evidence of that is if I was to tell a joke and make people laugh, everyone would find me funny. But I can tell a joke and there would be a myriad of responses. Some people might laugh. Some people might chuckle. Some people might not find it. Some people might find it offensive. It's exactly the same words. It's how that's internalized and you create your own feeling. And then that's, you know, right the way back to where we started. We create our own anxiety by what we focus on. Mm. Someone asked, I was on a panel the other day and the, their curveball final question to the panelists was, what, what bit of advice would you give your five-year-old self? And I said, my, my response was just do what you're going to do. Just keep on being you. Because mm. when you get to 57, you'll, you'll be happy with life. So don't change a thing. Just, just, just be you. And I, and I think if we regret, if we regret decisions we've made in the past, that changes who you are today. So if I if I if I made decisions as a ten year old or fifteen year old, then I may not have made my met my wife. I may not have my children. My children wouldn't have grown up in the way they've done it. The relationship I built and the life I've had since would all have changed. I'm not saying change worse; it just changed different. So if I'm completely satisfied with a lot of what I have today, how can I regret that? Because by changing one thing, could destabilize everything I have today. So you're right; it's about. If I if I if I wish I'd done something differently, there's different to regret. I've now I can now learn. I can now take that opportunity. Yeah, I may regret spending a lazy Sunday and not not doing something I should have done or I could have done. Mm. And I think okay, I, I'll, I'll learn from that and do it next Sunday, or make sure yeah. I do, or or yeah. not beat myself up, or just go. Actually, I, I needed a rest. I didn't need to do that today. It didn't matter. Uh, and then maybe looking at the uh, 
yeah, the mattering spectrum. Does it in the in the scale of things? Did it really matter? Mm. What am I beating myself up about? So yeah, it's it's a good good point about regret. It has no value. It has no doesn't change things. Regrets and change like guilt mm. or shame. It's just it's just emotions that you 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 can't do anything with. It's about learning, educating, focusing, deciding what's next. Yeah, and even say going back to to guilt, people often see guilt as a bad thing, but all of our emotions have a role. Guilt again is from learning. I used to have a huge amount of guilt um, for for not doing enough, not being enough, and it was when I was doing my training as a hypnotherapist, I put myself up as the guinea pig for one of the interventions, and um, I went back to a memory when I was probably about six or seven, something like that. My mum was a big baker and she'd make this whole batch of cookies, put them on the kitchen windowsill and said, Caroline, leave those alone there for tea. And of course, as soon as she left the room, I snuffled half a dozen of them, ran up the garden and ate them all. And that guilt, because I knew I shouldn't done it, was still seated within me as a kind of negative energy that I'd never released. And that then you know, carried on being triggered so I was guilty about this because I knew I shouldn't be doing it. So the role of guilt is learning. And as soon as I kind of forgave myself and went, okay, you were six. They were only flipping cookies. <laughs> the world is still spinning. Did mum notice? Probably didn't find out. Certainly didn't tell me off for it. It's okay. And as soon as I kind of gave that permission to forgive myself, the rest of the guilt just kind of dispersed. Guilt is, again, it's an emotion. It is a positive emotion because it helps you to learn. Don't steal things because it feels bad. <laughs> yeah? Yes. Yeah. Doing something you know is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's about, that's, that's that's about that's self-discipline, isn't it? Any, yeah. Anything, when, you, when people come to me, oh, I feel real guilty, it's always about doing something that you was wrong. So learn from it, forgive yourself, move on. Don't do it again. Hmm. So again, all of our or, emotions. Or change your relationship with with right and wrong. I'm not saying yeah. if it's, only, it's, it's societally unacceptable, then yes, yeah. I, I agree. But sometimes we, we can feel guilt about something we perceive is wrong because that, that's our own internal moral compass or standard. The, the yeah. world doesn't necessarily see it as wrong. It's just we, we internalise it as through shame, guilt, it's a hidden secret, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that sort of comes back to what what are you focusing on? What's wrong? What's right? Yeah. You can focus on the wrong. You're looking at the negative. But what, you know, I didn't look at all the things that that six, seven-year-old that did that were really good. I was just focusing on the one thing that she did was quite bad. Mm. I know a lot of people feel a lot of guilt and shame about their sexuality, their gender identity, yeah. uh, maybe even their mental health, whatever it may be, or their, or their, their lack of, or, I know people feel kind of, guilty about not being an extrovert not being able to mix at parties mm. not being able to have conversations mm. there's a whole lot of stuff there that i think you, as you were pointing out the the response we're looking for really is is learning and growing and how yes. do we how do we move past that how do we start to love ourselves and accept who mm. we are first because that's sometimes the biggest challenge isn't it we yeah. we don't it, love ourselves still- enough Something that I would, would love to see that, you know, to become more inclusive and accepted generally is this perception that mental health is a weakness. So if someone, God forbid, had a, a tumour, you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't see that as a weakness. If someone only had one arm, you wouldn't see that as a weakness. But people then see mental health, you know, anxiety or depression, whatever it may be, 
that is a weakness. No, it's just a part of your mind that's not working to its optimum. Just as if you have a tumor, it's that organ is not working to its optimum. It's no different. But there is still a big diversity in how physical illness and mental illness is treated. I noticed from the, some of the notes you sent through earlier that you were 35 years old with a young child and 30, was it 35 weeks pregnant with a young yeah, child when pregnant, you moved to yeah. Germany. Yeah. That must have been a, a challenge um, to be upped and dropped in a new community. How, what did that teach you about yourself? Uh, to be very self-sufficient. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, so I told, my husband was in the army. I told him I was pregnant two days before he went off to Iraq. So he was off in Iraq for seven months. He came back, we had a week on holiday and then literally moved out to Germany um, when I was 35 weeks pregnant, uh, where I didn't know another soul. Fortunately, I did speak German, so that helped a little bit. Um, but yeah, to, and my daughter at the time was um, 18 months old. So I had a toddler, no support network, new home, um, and Nick was quite senior as well. So the military hierarchy is, is a fun thing to play around in, especially as a woman. So I was effectively chief bitch, which made it quite hard to make friends at times. Um, and yeah, you, you become quite resilient. Um, I think army wives are, they either become very strong or they move out of the army network. You, you, it does teach you to become very resilient, uh, very self, self-supporting, but it is, it is a fabulous network to be part of as well. Um, give you another really positive example. My daughter got pneumonia and the German hospital system is, is very different. You basically as a parent become the nurse. So I had to be with her 24 seven. Um, and literally all the nurses do in German hospitals is deliver medication. They don't do the kind of, you know, snuggling down and, and all the touchy feeling stuff. Um, and my son at the time was five months old. And as all these things happen, Nick was away in another country. I can't even remember where. Um, it happened in the middle of the night. So there was me, a baby and a very, very sick toddler, 2 a.m. In, in hospital. So as soon as I thought it was relevant, I called a friend and literally within three hours, someone had picked up my house keys, had gone and fed the dog. Someone had picked up the baby and just said, don't worry about her, him, we will be, he will be looked after until you're back out the hospital. And literally, that was it. He was just passed, you know, from house to house. He was always looked after. He might not have been hugely happy, but he was safe. That was my only priority. So I could give all my attention to Nadia. Had I not been in that military environment, I don't think that would have happened. So it's that instant family, that instant support network. Yeah, it's just that whole kind of, okay, what needs to be done, it will happen. Hmm. So because you're... Your, your your husband was a senior officer or rank yep. rating yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So you assume the equivalent role as the uh, as the wife partner, you and you you have yeah. to sort of hold court over the people of more junior ranking wives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and you're expected to but be the that's, yeah, that's a kind head of the, the head of the wives. That's the expectation. Yeah. Um, there's there's certain roles and functions that um, that you have to fulfil, and you know. Nick and I have a very good relationship. And I said to Nick, look, okay, I will, 
I will do certain things, but I do them in my way. I will host all the dinner parties, but, you know, I will expect people to walk in, kick off their shoes and curl up on the sofa if that's what they want to do. I'm not going to do the whole stuffy things and I will do the meet and greet, but I'll turn up on the doorstep in my welly boots with the dog and a packet of biscuits and see where we go from there. So I do things my way and it will either go down well or it won't. Mm. Because again, I've managed to develop this kind of thicker skin of this is who I am. I don't need to be loved. You know, it's lovely when you are, but I don't need to be loved. And I will do things that make me feel good. Hmm. Your story about moving to Germany pregnant, it sort of, uh, it just sparked a memory of my, uh, I had a conversation with my mother. So I was born in 1965. And my father was in the Navy uh-huh. and he was posted out to Singapore because in the mid sixties, there was a lot of trouble out there, Malaysians. So yeah. the British were out there keeping peace in that area. And uh, my mum flew out to join him shortly after he was dispatched on a, on a, a HMS bulwark. I think it was at the time. And she didn't realize she was pregnant with me. And she found out that she was pregnant with me, I think shortly after she arrived. And she was told at that point that had, had it been known she was pregnant or that that far pregnant she wouldn't have been allowed to fly and that right. was the rules in those days so yeah. i think it was military transport uh, the flying was probably different in, in the mid-60s and so she she was faced with raising me mm-hmm. she, she was giving um a, a local person called an armor who yeah. was her effectively her assistant because it's so hot so sticky mm. it, so I think even if she wasn't pregnant, she would have had someone who would have helped her washing, laundering, and everything sure. like that. But yeah, she she had a she had an armor which who effectively became my nanny, mm-hmm. and, and of course, I suppose she had the luxury of, of my father working and living near the ship, near the base. So he wasn't he wasn't stationed away, but obviously he went off and exercised. So she was thrown into a different culture, um, di- completely different language. Yes, she was in a kind of microcosm of expat service personnel around her yeah but it was a uh, again it, it you could i suppose you could argue that german germany is, is a not too dissimilar culture from a european perspective yes language and other other rules but yeah she, she was definitely in malaysia and singapore and it was a completely different world to her so yeah i was mm-hmm. talking to her the other week and to what you were saying she must have had it tough she must have had a this real felt really isolated and, yeah uh, i genuinely feel it was a real privilege to be an army wife for the how many 20 odd years that I was there were times like that which were incredibly hard but I've also had access to so many things so many privileges and and seen mm. so many events and um you know trooping of the color in back in, in London all things like that that I wouldn't have had access to if I wasn't you know doing the role that that I was so again, and clearly it, yeah you're a very confident self-assured woman knows knows her mind got a, a business that's successful, uh, able to tackle challenges. And I'm sure you grow into that as as you evolve in, the, in that sort of situation where you, you are put in those difficult, tough situations. Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of you to say, thank you. But I haven't always been confident. You know, I didn't go to university because I was too scared to leave home. Um, you know, there's lots of things that I can say I didn't do because of anxiety. So I'm not anything special, but I have learned I have become who I am today because I just kept nudging that comfort zone out. And now it's quite big. 
but you know there's there's nothing special about me I've just carried on like I think one of my favorite words is curiosity I'm just curious I was a as a gymnast uh, to quite a high level when I was young and um the way my my trainer quickly cued into if I was having a bit of a tantrum about something said I couldn't do it she'd just say oh Caroline okay Caroline you can't do it because if someone says to me, you've got to go left, my curiosity goes, hmm, what's down the right-hand path then? So if someone says you can't, I'm going to go, wow, let me see if I can. And that, I think it's the curiosity that probably for me is the inherent strength that I've always had to mm. see what's just the other side of that bit that I don't know. And as I, we I used you know, a, a reputation said, for, when, when you go outside the yeah. comfort zone, that's when confidence grows. I used to have a reputation. People always used to ask me, what did I want to do? Did I want to do this or did I want to do that? And my response would always be, can I do both, please? Yeah. Um, and I'd always oh, I'd always insist on doing the first thing, the thing that was chronologically first, because there's always the chance you could do the second thing as well. But if you if you turn down the first thing and you don't like the second thing, you've missed you've missed that opportunity. So I'd always I'd always take the first option. And when I was out in uh in Los Angeles for a while, I was doing some work over there for a bank, and we had we hired cars for the weekend. I think it was a Thanksgiving weekend when the whole place just shuts down. If you haven't got family, we 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 drove this. Uh, I think it was a Pontiac or a Ford something Mustang or something. We drove it with the roof down up the i up the i one i i one yeah the Pacific, the Pacific Highway, and we got to this place called Oxnard, which is not particularly. Not particularly nice town by any standards. It's kind of industrial, and we were looking for something to eat, and we were all going, "Well, I don't know. What do you fancy? What do you fancy? What do you fancy?" So I just said, oh, "Hang on a minute. What we do is we do what I would call green man navigation. We get to an inter- intersection, and we whichever light was green, we cross the road. We get to the next one, we we, we carry on straight. Every time it's green, we cross the road that way. So we we're, were navigating around around this town, basically by green man intersections. We just keep going straight from there. Yeah. And eventually, we came across this burger joint." I said, well, this is where destiny has taken us. And we went and had a, had, a, had a big fill of messy burgers in there. And the moral of the story is, is that that burger was absolutely awful. It was really, <laughs> really awful. It wasn't the place you would have chosen. But we got there by chance and we had fun that day, just the randomness of not having yeah. any predetermined plan. Mm. When in the absence of a decision, use something else to create a path for you and yeah and i've I've used that technique on a number of times now which path is clear let's go that way and then see what happens and uh it's a great way of just i don't know removing some anxiety just abdicating the decision if you like for a bit uh, and just going with the flow and uh, a lot of people sometimes find that really difficult to just let go and go with the flow and it's Mm. uh and i think it does you don't have to have a plan you don't have to know what you're going to do next uh, but I appreciate sometimes people like that. And uh, yeah. again, a big, a big source of anxiety is the what if. Yeah. You know, what if X, Y, Z happens? So it's it's going, projecting out into the future. And my response always is, what if it doesn't? You just flip it. Yeah, your brain will answer whatever question you feed it. So if you feed it a negative question, you know, what if I get made redundant? What if my husband has an affair? Your mind will go down that rabbit hole, hmm. leading to a particular emotion, typically, you know, anxiety, whatever it may be. Whereas if you just flip the question, what if he doesn't? What if I get the job? It will answer that question too, leading you to a very different place. 
So again, what if is it's a really easy one to to change what you're focusing on to give you a different reality. Mm. Yeah, completely. Well, on that note, I mean, we've been talking for coming up for an hour now, and it's been amazing. We could carry on talking about this all day, and uh, I've did. got loads of more questions I can ask. <laughs> uh, it's been fascinating to get to know you better and hear your story Likewise. as well. So, Caroline Kavner, how do people get hold of you? So the uh, I made life easy both for me and everyone else. It's just carolinecavanagh.co.uk. Um, and on there, there's all sorts of things, lots of um, free downloadable resources on how to reduce anxiety. You can get a copy of my book, which is called Anxiety Alchemy. Um, one thing that I, I do recommend for people, it's to get a real good feel for um, not only my work, but how you can use the mind differently is uh, it's a 30-day course. Now, I know we all join these courses, the intention of doing 30 days, you know, it's it's there, you can dip into and out of it, but it's 30 different techniques to reduce stress. We live in a stressful world. So the more tools that you have in your toolbox, the more finesse you can have in whatever situation that you're faced with. So there's tools that are great. If your stress level is about to be an implosion, then there's two or three things that are really good at just bringing you down that notch. There's some great tools that can, again, bring you down further. There's ones that are really good at stopping it building up in the first place. So um, it's uh, easily accessible. It's very cheap. And it's just a series of very short videos that you learn, you practice. And when you're ready, you move on to the next one. So, but um, yeah, the best thing is just carolinecavener.co.uk. Have a look around there's lots of lots of stuff on there both for my own and, and from other people as well and just for the people listening to this Kavanagh is spelled c-a-v-a-n-a-g-h right? it is indeed yeah and it's caroline c-a-r-o-l-i-n-e because that can be spelt in lots of different ways as well yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've learned not to make assumptions on this podcast because Very yeah, so. i've had some fantastic irish guests on here and how they spell the name and how they pronounce it are completely different yeah. so yeah we, we yeah. can't make any assumptions Caroline, thank you. It's been a blast. Uh, absolutely fantastic. And it's been an honour to have you here today. So for our guests, people who are listening, huge thank you to you for tuning in. Please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, please share the love. I have a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, Maybe if you're listening and you'd like to be a guest, please let me know. And of course, I'd always welcome feedback and suggestions on how I can improve the show and ideas. So please email me, joe.lockwood at cchainchapman.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It has been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone.